Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, the weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Jesus and James, Vain Worship versus True Religion. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August the 30th, 2015. A few years ago, when my daughter was playing high school soccer, she had a team lunch at which a mom gently reminded her daughter to remove the cheese from her Subway sandwich. It's not kosher, she laughed, but at least it's a little bitter. I admired this mother's care to follow Jewish dietary laws to so-called keep kosher by eating only what is fit or clean. From the Hebrew word kosher, Following purity laws, the halakha, is an important way for Jews to express their relationship to God. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 7 this week, ritual purity is the context for the mission and message of Jesus. Dietary restrictions were only a tiny part of a much larger holiness code that regulated every aspect of personal and community life for Jews 3,500 years ago. By one count, there are 631 mitzvot or commandments in the five books of Moses. The purity laws of Leviticus 11 to 26, for example, describe clean and unclean foods, purity rituals after childbirth or a menstrual cycle, regulations for skin infections and contaminated clothing or furniture, prohibitions against contact with a human corpse or a dead animal, instructions about nocturnal emissions, laws regarding bodily discharges, agricultural guidelines about planting seeds and mating animals, and decrees about lawful sexual relationships, keeping the Sabbath, forsaking idols, and even, interestingly, tattoos. Why so many rules? Some of these purity laws encoded common sense or moral ideas that we still follow today, like prohibitions against incest. Others regulated hygiene and sanitation. Still others symbolized Israel's unique identity that differentiated its people from pagan nations. Ultimately, though, and at their best, the purity laws ritualized an exhortation from Yahweh. Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. When the alternate Psalm 15 for this week asks, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? The right response is that only people who are so-called pure may approach a holy God. We don't know how much ordinary first-century Jews maintained ritual purity, but the Pharisees, about whom we read so much in the Gospels, certainly did. Throughout the Gospels, the Pharisees criticized Jesus for his flagrant disregard for ritual purity. Jesus the Jew touched a leper. His disciples didn't fast. 
He ignored Sabbath laws. He touched a woman with a discharge and handled a corpse and healed two Gentiles. In the Gospel this week, perhaps the most important of all the purity texts, Mark recounts a clash between Jesus and the Pharisees about food purity. The Pharisees complained that Jesus' disciples ate with unclean hands. Mark includes two parenthetical explanations to his Gentile readers, who otherwise might have been clueless about these Jewish laws. He says, The Pharisees and all the Jews don't eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. And then, in an aside that we might find trivial, but his Jewish readers would have found shocking, Mark writes, quote, Jesus thus declared all foods clean. Notice the central accusation in this clash. The Pharisees considered Jesus and his followers, followers as ritually unclean sinners who flaunted God's clear laws. They were dirty, impure, and in a sense, they were right. Given our propensity to justify our own selves and to scapegoat others, the purity laws lent themselves to a spiritual stratification or hierarchy between the ritually clean who considered themselves to be close to God and the unclean who were shunned as impure sinners who were far from God. So, instead of expressing the holiness of God, ritual purity became a means of excluding people considered dirty, polluted, or contaminated. In word and in deed, Jesus ignored, disregarded, and actively demolished these distinctions of ritual purity as a measure of spiritual status. The New Testament scholar Marcus Borg argued that Jesus turned the purity system with its sharp social boundaries on its head. In its place, he substituted a radically alternate social vision. The new community that Jesus announced would be characterized by interior compassion for everyone, not external compliance to a purity code by egalitarian inclusivity rather than by hierarchical exclusivity, and by inward transformation rather than outward ritual. In place of be holy, for I am holy, Leviticus 19.2, said Borg, Jesus deliberately substituted the call, be merciful just as your father is merciful. Luke 6.36. And so in his book, What Jesus Meant, the historian Gary Wills writes, 
No outcasts were cast out far enough in Jesus' world to make him shun them. Not Roman collaborators, not lepers, not prostitutes, not the crazed, not the possessed. Are there people now who could possibly be outside his encompassing love? Just as Jesus warns of worshiping in vain, James draws a distinction between religion that is either worthless or faultless, either true or defiled. The difference between the two has to do with self-deception, says James. Don't be deceived, he writes. All the good gifts in my life come from the Father above. In a striking description, James says that God gives generously to all without finding fault. The myth of the self-made person is just that, a myth. It's a self-deception. And then a second time, James repeats, don't deceive yourselves. Don't merely listen to the gospel and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. To listen without doing is like looking at your face in a mirror, walking away, and then forgetting what you look like. And then a third time, James says, I deceive myself if I consider myself religion and yet do not keep a tight rein on my tongue. James compares the power of speech to a bit in a horse's mouth a small rudder that steers a large ship, or a tiny spark that ignites a huge forest fire. Much as Jesus contrasted outward obedience with inward compassion, James contrasts worthless religion that is self-deceptive with the faultless religion of caring for widows and orphans. When I was in grad school, I came across a prayer by Soren Kierkegaard that I liked so much that my wife printed it in calligraphy. For many years, it hung in my office. Kierkegaard's prayer warns me of self-deception, a la James, and of confusing the rules made by men with the commands of God, per Jesus. He writes, Lord, give us weak eyes for things that don't matter, and eyes full of clarity in all your truth. And so may the Spirit of God give us more self-understanding and less self-consciousness for a life of faith that is authentic rather than in vain, more faultless and less worthless. For books this week, I, renew, I review a volume of essays by Wendell Berry. It's called Our Only World, Ten Essays. Berkeley, Counterpoint, 2015. This book is 178 pages. Wendell Berry was born in 1934 to a family that had farmed Kentucky land for five generations. After studies and travels took him to the University of Kentucky, 
Stanford, France, Italy, and the Bronx. In 1965, he bought his own farm near his birthplace. He's been tilling the earth and churning out books ever since then. Over 50 books of poetry, novels, essays, and short stories have earned Barry numerous awards as one of the leading truth-tellers of, of our day. Most of all, I think of Wendell Berry as a modern-day prophet. Readers who are familiar with Berry will find in these ten essays the same themes he's written about for 50 years. He writes that the dominant theme of our time is the violence done against human life and the land. Ever since the Industrial Revolution, we've had to face what he calls the fundamental incompatibility between industrial systems and natural systems, machines and creatures. Global corporations do violence to local communities. There's an estrangement between the technological economy and natural ecosystems, for technology has become a means to efficiency and profit without any greater ends that would constrain it. People are reduced to finding a job rather than a vocation or a calling. Barry reads better in his analyses than in, than in his alternatives. For example, he invokes the Amish as the only communities that are successful by every appropriate standard. The Jeffersonian ideal of small landholders. Logging with horses instead of mechanical skitters. And a romanticized rural Kentucky of a hundred years ago when young people actually did something instead of sitting around doing what he calls nothing. Barry says he is neither a conservative nor a liberal, but rather, quote, stuck in the middle and most uncomfortable. He insists that we shouldn't say we can't do anything. One person can make a beginning and act on principle and begin better with the help of others. And so he writes, we can begin, quote, the long, necessary, difficult, and happy effort of restoring communities that foster true life. Wendell Berry, Our Only World, 10 Essays. For movies this week, I review a new film from the countries of Estonia and Georgia. It's called Tangerines from 2014. This film, which was a joint project of the two former Soviet republics that are now independent countries, was nominated for Best Foreign Film at both the Academy Awards and the Golden Globe Awards. It tells the story of an Estonian man named Ivo. When war broke out in the Central Asian country in 1992 between the Georgians and the breakaway Abkhazians, virtually all the Estonians who had lived there for a hundred years returned to their Baltic homeland back north. Ivo stayed behind to harvest his tangerines. Then a skirmish on his property bought two wounded warriors under his roof 
a Chechen mercenary named Ahmed, who was Islamic, and a Georgian named Nico, who was an Orthodox Christian. Most of all, they are the bitterest of ethnic enemies. Will Evo's healing hospitality help them to recover their humanity? Or will their hatred and revenge prevail? This movie is in Russian and in Estonian. I watched it on Amazon Instant Streaming. From the two countries, Estonia and Georgia, an award-winning award film named Tangerines. In the light of my book review this week by Wendell Berry, we've posted a poem by Wendell Berry. It's from his book's Leavings from the year 2010. The poem has one word. It's called Questionnaire. In this questionnaire, Barry proposes five questions to you and to me. He gives them each a number. Number one, how much poison are you willing to eat for the success of the free market and global trade? Please name your preferred poisons. Number two, for the sake of goodness, how much evil are you willing to do? Fill in the following blanks with the names of your favorite evils and acts of hatred. Number three, what sacrifices are you prepared to make for culture and civilization? Please list the monuments, shrines, and works of art you would most willingly destroy. Number four, in the name of patriotism and the flag, how much of our beloved land are you willing to desecrate? List in the following spaces the mountains, rivers, towns, farms you could most readily do without. And number five, state briefly the ideas, ideals, or hopes, the energy sources, the kinds of security for which you would kill a child. Name, please, the children whom you would be willing to kill. From his book, Leavings, in the year 2010, a poem by Wendell Berry called Questionnaire. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August the 30th, 2015. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.